0: Welcome, and thank you for joining Detroit Church's Greatest Adventure Bible Study Podcast, where we take a moment to get a little deeper into biblical understanding and ask those burning questions through engagement, teaching, facilitated discussion, and group interaction. You are more than welcome to follow along with us through this journey at DetroitChurch.com backslash trending and click on the Greatest Adventure Bible Study link.
1: Amen. Good evening, everyone. Uh, it is well, uh, good evening, Pastor Sonny, uh, and the rest of y'all. Let me, let me let y'all get involved. Good evening, everyone. Amen. It is good to see you guys here on another Lord's Day Wednesday night. Uh, we want to pray that folks will get here safely as we got a little slush and, and sleet and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and usually people lose their minds at that first one. You, you know, you think the earth is going to end, and, you you know, you can't drive nowhere, and then you realize, oh, yeah, I've been through this before, uh, you, you know. And so I hope that folks will realize I've been through this before uh, while they own on the way and not use that as an excuse to uh, not come on out. But uh, we're going to pray and give Pastor Sonny, who's going to be our teacher on tonight, uh, as much time as uh, he uh, has, not, not as much time as he wants, but as much time as he has to uh, take us on through. Uh, Galatians chapter five. And so uh, let's pray. Father God, we do bless your name. We thank you so much, oh God, for another time that you have allowed us to gather, Lord. Uh, whether we be few or many, God, uh, Lord, my Bible tells us where two or three are gathered together in your name. There you are in the midst. And so we thank you for your presence on tonight, oh God. We have met at least the minimum requirement, oh Lord, that that, that would have you here. And we pray, Father, that while you're here, that you would uh Lord, enlighten our minds, that we might understand your word that you would enliven our hearts, oh God, that we might be receptive to it, that you would empower our limbs, that we might do your word, God, let it not just be uh stuff of intellect, oh God, but stuff Lord, where we uh, see our lives change, where fruit uh comes from our lives, God, and we're changed people for your glory, and so have your way, we pray, father, certainly safety for those who are yet on the way here, get them safely here, God, and should you uh, and just have your way. Uh, we invite your presence on tonight. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. All right, let's welcome Pastor Sonny Smith as he comes to share what the Lord has put on his heart. That was a weak clap. All right. All right. That was yes. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Amen. Amen.
2: <laughs> Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. It's a blessing to stand before you all every time we get to come together and center our focus and attention around God's word um, I want to just thank you all for being here uh, we get to these you know, fall and winter cold evenings you <laughs> you have to make a decision <laughs> and I'm grateful for for you all I ask Pastor Flynn pray whether it's uh, few or many um, and pray for me this this has been a difficult day just um, walking with some of God's people with some pretty urgent Things that are going on in their lives. We have one of our dear sisters, our leaders, we got a message about 30 minutes ago. Uh, matter of fact, her husband is texting me now. Uh, rush to the hospital. So uh, please keep our sister Tanisha Owen um, in your prayers, please. She heads up our First Impressions ministry. And um, yeah, I'm just leaning on the power of the Holy Spirit and going to declare Uh, what God's word says, and trust the Holy Spirit to do what he can do even in our weakness. Amen. Um, I do uh, like, I I would like to see our engagement tonight, our time tonight be as interactive as possible. So I have some slides, and by some I mean a lot. (laughs) So pray for Joss as well, (laughs) just to to keep up with me. And uh, I, I want to Start our conversation, let's call it, with uh, taking this a Socratic approach by asking you just some questions. And, it's, and so there, you know, I won't, I won't say there are no wrong answers because there are some wrong <laughs> answers. However, um, I want you to be okay with having the wrong answer. You know what I mean, I, I think the goal is to be engaged mentally and to and to grow and to learn. and sometimes we do that best by by stepping out there and answering something and being flat out wrong, <laughs> you know and, and being corrected. And this isn't to expose anyone again, it's just to to kind of step into this Socratic approach and to kind of get us thinking. um so we'll we'll do that kind of throughout. Um, the time tonight, especially the, the early part. And if, as usual, if you have any questions um, while I'm speaking, just throw your hand up and, uh, and we'll get to you. My first question is, what is genuine faith? What is genuine faith? And I don't mean faith from a, a verb verb standpoint that has action. I mean from a, a nominative or a noun place, you know, what would you describe? How would you describe genuine faith? Anybody want to take a shot at that?
1: You gonna have to say it again. You gotta say it on the mic? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe like authentic. Okay.
2: That's kind of like what genuine means. Right? What about faith? How is it authentic? What makes faith authentic? Is in your heart. Is what you really believe and not what you're
1: showing to people. Okay. Proclaiming to believe.
2: What you believe. Okay. In your heart. Anyone else?
3: I think it is, um, like, when I think of my faith, it's like I put my faith in someone, like, trust. Mm. Like, I lean and depend on that trust. Mm-hmm through my actions that show that, that that's real.
1: You know, mm-hmm. it's not
3: just like an idea. Mm-hmm. It's It's got some accountability with it, I would say. Okay. Um, but I think of trust a lot.
2: Amen. Amen. Anyone else want to take a shot at it? What is genuine faith? Uh, it can be in the midst of doubt, but it is, it's like a trust that is not really dependent on your desired outcome. Mm, Okay, yeah, love it, love it, love it. One more over here, Sister Erin.
0: When I think of genuine, I think of something that is pure, it's not been mixed with anything else. So I, I, I immediately went to thinking about my dog. She's a purebred, okay? Um, she's not mixed with anything else. So when I think of genuine faith, I think of a conviction in Christ and, and God and who he is that's not mixed with anything else. It doesn't need the help. You know, as it was previously stated, it's not dependent upon... The strength of anything else, but it is what it is by
3: itself.
2: Yeah, it seems to be a common thread, and, and I, I love that. Um, and and I, I really do not think any of these answers are wrong necessarily. They are kind of like working definitions. Uh, thank God for Paul. <laughs> so, what we're going to do is we're going to see how Paul would define genuine faith as we climb through uh, the text here. So, um we are starting the third section of this letter the letter to galatians it's the third section In this passage that we're in today, Galatians 5, verses 1 through 15, kind of starts that section. Um, If you recall, in the very first section of the letter, in chapters 1 and 2, Paul is defending his apostleship, the first section. In the second section, Paul's message is basically justification by faith, justification by faith. And then now, in the third section, Paul is going to wind down the letter, he's coming to a close... And he's doing so by applying the doctrine that he's been establishing. He's going to apply the doctrine he's been establishing and how it can be lived out in a practical way. So for practical Christian living. Again, the doctrine he's been establishing is what? Justification by faith, Justification by faith right? So he's been, like, he's been going in on that. It's been some heavy stuff, and it's been good stuff. Now he's going to kind of, I won't say lighten up or soften the tone, maybe a little bit, but, but it's specifically to help us know how do we live this thing out. It's one thing to know it up here. It's another thing to carry it out and, and where it has meaning and substance in our everyday lives. Amen? Isn't that what this walk is about? So there's a, there's a theological term, a term that scholars and theologians use when it comes to th- what we believe and what we do, or what we bear, what we believe, what we know, and what we bear, what we do. And what we know has to do with our orthodoxy, our belief system. I, I, I did not put this on the screens Um but I think it's good to just to kind of reiterate here what we know is our orthodoxy, but what we do, what we practice, is our orthopraxy, right? So this is really, really important, and I love how Paul um, divides the letter out. So it's not all just information and knowledge. It's not all just doctrine. The Word of God is 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 inspired. Amen? And it's beneficial to us not just for our knowledge uh, but but to rebuke us (laughs) and to correct us and to help us live our lives on an everyday basis to the glory of God. So he wants the Galatians uh, and us us, to understand that right doctrine, right doctrine should result in right living. right. Right doctrine is not there to help us look smart or just to be on the right team. It's to help us to walk a certain way, to live a certain way. In other words, another doctrinal term here, sanctification should result from justification. Sanctification should result from justification. Now, we're going to need to break these words down a little bit, specifically sanctification, because they are, they can be used uh, in the scriptures. We do see them used on, on, on two, on, in two ways. I like to call it two sides of the same coin. So one aspect of sanctification is simply what God has already done through Jesus. The other side of sanctification is because of what God has done, how we live, what we do. Right? The first aspect of sanctification sets the stage. It sets the tone. It means that God alone is holy. But the second side of that coin, the other side of that coin is because he's holy, he calls us to be holy because he calls us into fellowship to be like him. So, so when, we use, when I'm using the term sanctification for the context of this chapter or this passage where Paul is writing, I'm talking about the second side of sanctification, the practical side of sanctification, just to be clear. So if I had to give this big, the big idea, this third section, verses 1 through 15 in chapter 5, a, a big idea. If I had to give it a big idea, it would be this. The life of genuine faith is more than belief in divine truth. It is also the bearing of divine fruit. More than belief in divine truth, it is also the bearing of divine fruit. We need both, Amen. I don't know how you're wired. Like, do you get excited about one over the other? If you do, maybe that's something to look at in your own heart and and even ask why. As a student, I can admit um, I spent a lot of years and not so far ago years getting really excited about truth divine truth. Things that I can know about having the right belief in as I should. Those are good things, right? But a lot less excitement about applying that and how I should walk. It was important to me, but it it just didn't get me as excited as divine truth. So a little example here of what it means to be genuine in our faith or faith that that is authentic as as Tess put it and I love that Tess imagine if I had up here a supercharged v8 Cadillac now I used to have one I bought one from a friend of mine a few years back and uh um it got totaled by one of my sons not the one sitting here (laughs) and that was a powerful car if you know anything about those cars or the supercharged v8 engines it was a It was a powerful boy. Now, imagine if I had one sitting up here. I'm talking about 700 horsepower, fresh paint, just looking beautiful. You turn that boy on, the engine doesn't just start. It growls. Like, it wants you to know that it's coming. Think of beauty. But if it had no transmission, if there was no mechanism in it to shift it into gear, to help it move, then the growling would just be false advertisement. It would not be a genuine representation. It would be a a fugazi, if you will. If you're a fan of mafia movies, you might be familiar with that term. A a fugazi or, or a fake. So... The transmission helps it be able to shift into gear, but we don't just need a transmission to shift it into gear or to go. We also need fuel. We need fuel, right? I love in this passage here, we're going to see Paul emphasize something that, that, that we, may, we may liken unto the, the fuel of our faith that it gives us the power to go. Anybody want to guess who that is? <laughs> it's the Holy Spirit. One, one I think uh, helpful tool whenever you're reading the scriptures. Again, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. It might have been just at the end when we were asking questions. But I always like to pray and invite Holy Spirit as the divine author into my settings when I'm sitting with Scripture, right? So we know that he's Lord over all of it. He's author over, over all of it. But, but also play very special and close attention when he is explicitly mentioned, when his name or his activities, his ministries are mentioned. And Paul does that here. We'll get to it here in a minute. And please understand, like, we need him for genuine Christian living, It's not just a set of rules. We need him. He's not an idea. He's not a feeling. People say, I caught the Holy Ghost. He's not a round object or ball that you can throw and catch. He's not a virus. He's a person. He's brilliant. He's genius. He's the most interesting person alive. And he is a person. Don't get it twisted. Without him, genuine Christian living is flat-out impossible. You need him. It is the Holy Spirit who makes life of faith work. Matter of fact, without the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, the life of faith is no more spiritually productive or acceptable to God than life under the law. <laughs> without them, we're just a bunch of Pharisees. Uh, my next question for you as we continue this little Socratic approach before we dig into um, the verse is here. Why do you think Christ redeemed us? Why did Christ redeem us? Anybody? <laughs> <laughs> to glorify him. Okay. Don't be shy. I, was,
3: I said for love.
2: For love, mm, okay. Redeemed for love, I love it. Nice, simple to the point. Okay. I want to take us back a couple chapters to Galatians chapter 3. And again, in honor of Holy Spirit, um, let's see what Paul, how Paul specifically puts this together. In verse 3 through 14, he writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us by speaks to how he did it by becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that here's the why so that again Christ redeemed us for the curse of the law let's skip down so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles again so that We might receive the promised spirit through faith. Wait, so this has always been about Holy Spirit? Even the blessing of Abraham wasn't about Abraham being so blessed. It was about the Holy Spirit. And Paul elaborates on this in this chapter here. Verse 1, chapter 5, it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The freedom for which Christ has set us free is a freedom to live a life, not under the yoke of slavery of the law, but in righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit. But Please hear this. While we are free in the Holy Spirit, God's, Standard of holiness, his standard of righteousness has not changed. It's never changed. What does that mean? Does God want us to be perfect? Let me, let, me throw, let me throw it back at you. Does God's standard require perfection? Anyone?
1: <laughs> we got we a divided household here. <laughs>
3: but I just think it's found in Christ, and
2: we are in him. Ding, 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 ding. That's it. That's it. We won't turn there, but Jesus makes this clear in the Sermon of the Mount. It requires not just outward performance of inner perfection. I'm sorry, not just our performance, but, but inner perfection, which is not achieved by us trying to keep the law. It is achieved by us believing in what Christ has already done. And when we do that, we receive the promise, the Holy Spirit, and he then enables us to live internal lives of righteousness. So, yes, his standard is still holiness. His standard is still holiness. Yes, sir. What he requires. So, for the podcast sake, Eli asked the question, what did I mean by God's standard? um simply what he requires because we see throughout the scriptures there is a problem right god has a plan it doesn't start with the problem it starts with with god's perfect plan right but then sin enters in and with the fall we see This problem kind of come into play. So then uh, what we see throughout the narrative of the scriptures in salvific history is God working towards the completion of his ultimate plan, which is fulfilled in Christ and in Christ alone. So... Just to answer that question again and to recap, yes, he still has a standard. His standard is still holiness, and he still demands perfect righteousness, but it is not us who achieve that. It's Christ who achieves that, who has achieved that. Amen? Everybody clear on that? There's no other way, matter of fact, outside of Christ to achieve that. There's no other way. I want to turn your attention to what some of you may be familiar with, um, the, what, is, what is referred to as the five solas of the Reformation. The five solas of the Reformation. Solas is Latin for uh, alone or loans. Matter of fact, anybody want to take a guess before we put it up there? Ah, uh, never mind. It's already up there. <laughs> I was going to put you on the spot. The five solas, and they are grace alone through faith alone. By Christ alone, according to the scriptures, alone, for the glory of God, alone. This was uh, put together during the early stages of, of the Protestant movement. And I believe that, that it's, it's still important for us to kind of have a, a, a strong understanding and, 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 and sense what Ephesians 2 said, God calls us being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So Paul is starting this third section, making his appeal for living by the Spirit, almost with this, we can call it a negative instruction. In other words, like what not to do. He's not, I don't use negative like we often use it today. Sometimes Paul gives instructions on what to stay away from and what not to do. So before we move into those things that we're going to talk about to do and what not to do, it's important that, that what we're talking about here is, is, is the practical side of our sanctification. Amen? All right. So his first, and we're going to climb through it, but I want to kind of give you a little preview here in verses 2 through 6. I think I do have it on the next slide there. Um, Paul warns us against the spiritual dangers of false doctrine. He warns us against the spiritual dangers of false doctrine. And then we'll cover verses 7 through 12 when he exposes the corrupt character of the false teachers. The corrupt character of the false teachers. And then the last two verses, the last three verses, uh, he he ends this passage by helping us understand the advantage of our freedom. The advantage of our freedom. So, um. Back to the spiritual dangers of false doctrine. Now, we it seems like we've been covering this topic of circumcision for a minute, doesn't it? Mm. But this is actually the first time Paul explicitly mentions it. <laughs> this is the first time that the issue of circumcision is dealt with directly in this letter. Some of you may remember that the Jews were often referred to simply as the circumcised because it was really important to them to be known by that because it was the most distinctive outward mark, the most distinctive outward mark, and the one that they carried the greatest pride in and confidence in. They're very proud of this fact. Every male child was to be circumcised as a dramatic symbol of God's desire to cleanse the heart by faith in him and to shower upon them, to impute upon them his righteousness. So the symbolism of of circumcision, the cutting away of the foreskin of the male genitalia was to be a constant reminder for generations of Jews that God desired to cut away the evil from their hearts right so yeah it was really really important to them it was a really really big deal to them but instead of looking at circumcision at the way God intended it to be symbolic of his covenant promise they looked at it as giving them spiritual value or a spiritual advantage over everyone else to the point where it no longer became about it being a reminder of God's grace of God's covenant, God's blessing over them, but it was a way for them to guarantee their favor. It was a way for them to kind of prove their worth. And as we go through this, I want you to know that Paul, uh, his objection here is not just to circumcision in and of itself. Like all Jewish boys, Paul had been circumcised as an infant. He didn't object to Christians being circumcised even if it was an open door for ministry and an open door for the gospel. So Paul's warning against circumcision here pertained only to the false idea that it carried some kind of spiritual advantage in and of itself. So he's going to, again, give us these, these warnings. I'm going to call them four ways that they will be cut off if they don't cut off the false teachers. Four ways Paul is saying they will be cut off if they do not cut off the false teachers. All right. Are you ready? Let's dig into this. Verse 2. Paul says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Christ will be of no advantage to you. So the first way that they will be cut off is they'll be cut off from the advantage. Cut off from the advantage. Paul starts off saying, behold, I, Paul, say to you, behold, I, Paul, say to you. He's reinforcing his apostolic authority here. Now, he also could have been emphasizing, again, his own Jewishness by saying, yo, this is me, Paul. I'm a former Pharisee. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, like he said to the church of Philippi in Philippians chapter 3. He wants them to know that obviously he's not speaking against trusting in circumcision because he has some kind of a personal or racial bias or vendetta against Jews because he's a Jew. Kind of reminds me of some of the things I've heard Kyrie say over the last couple of weeks, if you've been paying attention to uh, the culture a little bit. Right. Paul, as an apostle and as a circumcised and as a redeemed Jew, he declared that to receive circumcision for the purpose of gaining an advantage before God was actually to make Christ of no advantage at all. So by trying to make an effort to, to reach up, you're actually reaching back or reaching down. To take a couple steps forward, you're, also, you're actually taking a few steps backward. And this is what happens when, when we, we try to serve him out of human effort. Mm. The atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus is perfect and complete as though it was. It cannot benefit a person who trusts in anything else because that something else, whether circumcision or any other legalistic or human act, stands now stands between them and Christ. All the people, imagine this, the people that Paul was writing to, we can assume, I think safely, uh, that they had made a profession of Jesus Christ as their savior, or they would not have been a part of the church, right? The church of Galatia. So we can assume here that Paul is talking to Christians, those who have placed faith in Jesus, maybe even we would say genuinely trusted him for salvation. But the bottom line was this, that they could not gain any eternal salvation or saving benefit uh, for serving Christ or benefit from, uh, for Christ or from Christ if they continued to trust in the things that they trusted in days past. In other words, human effort, to trust in human effort is to trust in your ability, is to trust in the law. Paul's trying to drive this point home that, That trusting in your ability, trusting in the law, is totally incompatible with trusting in grace and trusting in Christ. It is mutually exclusive. They do not go together. It's like oil and water. You cannot combine them together. A person becomes acceptable to God, Paul wants us to know, and and maintains the advantage only by placing full trust in his son, Jesus, the Christ. And get this, after they are saved, after they are saved, when they're persevering and living a life in practical sanctification, in practical holiness, that is only truly continued in a genuine and authentic way by continuing to place faith or trust in Christ and Christ alone. What are you saying, Sonny? I'm saying that, that we not only need to trust him when we come Trust him and only him when we come to him. But we have to keep coming to him and keep trusting to him as we continue this walk. What happens is, like we see happening here, we come to him saying, I can't save myself. I need you. But then somewhere along the line, we start believing the lie that, well, I can do some things. I mean, I can, I can pray pretty good. You know? I'm, a, I'm a good worshiper. Or I'm a good studier. Or I can I can abide by these things, or I can serve the lost or serve the poor, and I can do all of these things. And is it wrong to do those things? Absolutely not. We should do those things. We should be we don't do those things to be seen, but we should be seen doing those things. But it cannot stand between us and Christ. And we cannot have the mindset that's that this. Church, the church of Galatia, had taken upon themselves that because they did those things, they were at an advantage. Oh. So whether before or after conversion, trust in ourselves, or in our own wef- effort, in any kind of way or any kind, is a barrier between us and Christ. I wonder how many believers place faith in Jesus think they have genuine faith but they're walking with a barrier between them and the Lord Jesus in the simplest but most toxic kind of way and Paul breaks down we're going to break this down a little bit more as we go along but this is I believe a this is a relevant word to the church today not just to the church of Galatia to the church of America To the church of Detroit. And just pick on us here. To Detroit church. If we can think that we can accomplish his, his, his favor or merit. Because we do A, B, C, or D correctly. The believing Gentiles gained Christ's righteousness. His perfect righteousness. And the unbelieving Jews tried to gain his righteousness, but do we know how, how it happened? <laughs> so the, the, the unbelieving Jews were not seeking for righteousness, but they just simply believed in who Jesus was and received it. The Jews were trying to attain this righteousness. And in seeking to do it, they tried to put it in their own hands. They tried to bear it upon their own shoulders, and their efforts were worthless. Their self-righteousness was worthless. Anybody have any idea how worthless it was? <laughs> Say it again. My, my. I was trying to see how real y'all was trying to get tonight, man. Hey, I know it's being recorded, but we can, get, can we get real? She said "As filthy rags, in case anyone didn't hear. Anybody know where that term comes from? <laughs> filthy rags is the term that the prophet Isaiah uses in Isaiah 64, verse 6, when he exposes Israel for their hypocrisy. When God had already laid out for them exactly how things were to be done, he had given them the blueprint, and they often got away from that design, that blueprint, and in trying to get back to it, they would add different things. So Isaiah calls them out for their hypocrisy, and the word he uses is is strong and maybe even disgusting in our culture today because we just don't talk about these things. The word filthy in the Hebrew there is a translation of the word it edah. It means the bodily fluids that come from a woman's menstrual cycle. This is how God viewed their perverted righteousness. Do I need to get more explicit? It's worthless to God. It means nothing. This is what Paul is trying to help us understand. Verse 3 Let's move on. Paul says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. He's obligated to keep the whole law. So again, part number two of four ways that they will be cut off if they didn't cut off the false teachers is they would be cut off from not having to keep the whole law. Cut off from not having to keep the whole law. This was a consequence of of trusting in circumcision. If they believed in keeping one, Paul says they have to keep them all. All or nothing. Well, you may think Ten, all Ten Commandments is not so bad. No, 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 no. Not the Ten Commandments, all 613. Anybody remember the three types of laws out of the 613 there were? Anybody remember what three types of laws were there? Say it again. Ooh. Civils one. Civic Civil, moral, moral, and ceremonial. Ceremonial, moral, and civic laws. Three different categories, but totaling 613. Paul says here, I testify again. I testify again. This word testify in the Greek carries the idea of a strong protest. A strong protest. And then he says again, like it's, there's this, there's this, emphasis on the urgency that he's trying to help them understand I'm telling you again if you are trying to to accept circumcision then you got to accept it all you have to keep it all James chapter 2 verse 10 tells us whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of it all why is that because again God's standard is still perfect righteousness perfect righteousness. In other words, fulfillment of only part of the law would fall dramatically short of his standard. That was that was James what again? James 2:10. James 2:10. So I did not do a slide for that one, I don't think. Ah, uh, let's keep on reading verse 4. You are severed from Christ you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. The third Cut off that Paul mentions here is to be cut off from grace, to be cut off from grace. He uses the word severed from Christ and the term fallen from grace. You may have heard this term used in the culture. We we just use this word grace, y'all, all kind of ways in our culture today, right? So I want to kind of just quickly just kind of break down what Paul is saying here. But first, when he uses this word severed, when it's followed by the pre- preposition that it's followed by here in the Greek, it means to be loosed from. It means to be separated from or disconnected from. Then he uses the word fallen. This word fallen is the Greek word ekpipto, E-K-P-I-P-T-O, ekpipto. And it means to also like to lose or to lose one's grasp of something. So, so there's one cutting away, then there's one loosing. And simply stating what he's saying is you can't live by both law and grace. If you're going uh, uh, you, you to try to hold on to one, you're going to lose the other. To even attempt to be justified by the law is to abandon the way of grace. Now, when he says fallen by grace, Paul is not dealing with eternal security here. He's not dealing with eternal security here. He's really not even dealing with like some kind of moral sin or moral failure that we often have used that phrase, fallen from grace, to kind of describe. But what he is doing, he's contrasting the different effects and ways of grace and law, of works and faith as a means of salvation, as a means of salvation. He's not teaching that a person who has been declared justified can lose their salvation by being circumcised or legalistic in, you know, any kind of way. He's also not doing that. His primary point in this passage here, as it is throughout this whole letter, is that you cannot mix law and grace. And as a means of salvation, they, again, are completely incompatible and mutually exclusive. Our our legalism, y'all, it offends God defends God. Does not please Him. It doesn't bring us closer to Him. It drives us further away. I don't have a slide for these terms either, but some of you may be familiar with two terms that I believe are, are part of the human response and our depravity. We either gonna go to what the scriptures call licentiousness or asceticism. Licentiousness is when I just do whatever I want to do and I don't really care about any of the repercussions or consequences. But asceticism thinks that well, I can accomplish what I need to accomplish spiritually by attaining my own righteousness. It's being self-righteous. It is, it is not really looking at my, the, 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 the splinter of the telephone pole in my eye, and I'm looking at the splinter in my brother's eye. And this, these, we tend to go one of these two ways. Both of them are offensive to God. And when when the term fallen from grace is applied to the believer, it has to do with the person who who genuinely trusts in Christ for their salvation. But then, somewhere along the line, they outwardly revert to this this pattern of legalism, this life of legalism, living under, you know, external rituals or ceremonies or traditions. They trust in their own strength instead of living by the Spirit and obedience to Christ. Verse 5, Paul says, For through the Spirit, there he is, for through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. How do we do this? Through the Spirit by faith. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything But only faith working through love. The fourth cutoff is being cut off from Christ's righteousness, is what Paul says. We're cut off from Christ's righteousness. Man, this is something that the Spirit helps the believer to yearn for in hope. To forsake the true life of blessing that God desires for his children is to trust again in our efforts, is to trust in. Legalism, it's the trust in our ability. The Judaizers didn't have the spirit, they didn't have the hope of righteousness that those the genuine believers had. Their hope of righteousness was based upon adding works of the law, imperfect works of the law, worthless works of the law, in their vain attempt to to complete (laughs) the work of Christ, like, like it wasn't complete, like it wasn't finished. That was their hope of righteousness. Their hope was in what they could attain in their own hands. Maybe even their own minds. What they can imagine up. What they can draw up and or think up. Do we, do we fall prey to this? When we talk about the spirit helping us have this hope of righteousness. Do we place ourselves in between Christ? And that that. Hope of righteousness by trying to do things by the flesh. By trying to do things by the natural. Paul says that we, that is the true believers, uh, through the spirit, by faith we're waiting for this hope of righteousness. And it is based upon God's grace. It's based upon God's grace. Believers, we already attain the imputed righteousness of justification. Yet, the incomplete righteousness of total sanctification and complete glorification is ahead of us. That's still coming. Romans 8, Paul writes this in verse, uh, ch- verse, chapter 8, verse 18. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Skip down to verse 21, he says, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So again, the Holy Spirit is the one who who helps us. It's through him that we have this hope. Now, Paul here mentions four characteristics of the spirit-filled life. I want to just quickly hit these. I think oftentimes these words have been, that phrase specifically, filled by the spirit or spirit filled has been um, co-opted, maybe even weaponized and, and, and misinterpreted. And I, and I don't want to do, this is not a full exhaustive teaching on what it means to be filled with the spirit, but just what we see in this passage here. Um, what, we, what we can take away from it is, uh, number one, uh, to be filled with the spirit means to, means to have a life that is lived through the spirit and not through the flesh. A life that is lived through the spirit and not through the flesh. Number two, it means a life that is lived by faith. Like there's no other way to live our lives and and be pleasing to him and not grieving to the Holy Spirit. There's no other way. To have a life lived by works is offensive, is grieving. But a life of faith is the way he's called us to live. If we're going to be filled with the spirit, also the spirit of God indwells us to help, helps us live a life of hope. We hope for righteousness. This hope for righteousness is not an anxious, restless, uh, impatient waiting that comes. Actually, those things come from bondage to the law. (laughs) We're free from the law. So there's this earnest waiting and this expectation of hope that the spirit of God does in us. And then the last one is the spirit filled life is a life. Of love, life of love. Y'all know we're without love, we're nothing. Without love, we are nothing. What is the the um, uh, Paul writes in First Corinthians thirteen? I could, man, I could prophesy. I can, I can interpret mysteries. I can have all knowledge. I can have all kinds of power. But if I don't have love, what am I? Nothing. I'm nothing. In that chapter, chapter 13, uh, it's, 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 it's sandwiched by 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you're a person that, as I am as well, that is uh, excited and open to the giftings of the Spirit and how the Spirit equips us and moves in us, I am as well. Those are things I believe should be celebrated, Right? But there is no chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians when Paul lists the gifts of the Spirit, I'm sorry, the, uh, the, the ministries of the Spirit. And there is no 14 when Paul goes into a little bit more detail about how it's operating in the corporate setting without 13. And first, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians helps us understand the Spirit's work in helping us love. A Spirit-filled life is a life of love. Life in the Spirit is not Uh, static and inactive. Paul says it's faith working through love, faith working through love. And he uses this term, he says, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor circumcision means anything. In other words, the outward, the outward show of it, how it looks on the outside is completely unimportant and worthless if it doesn't reflect something on the inside, an, inter, an inner righteousness, an inner sanctification. Just like circumcision, you know, we, we embrace and celebrate baptisms. But unless there's been an inner work of salvation, an inner work of righteousness, you can go down a dry devil and come up a wet devil. Yeah. Still a devil. Still in need of Salvation. Because that is simply an outward expression of something that is happening on the inside. (sighs) Amen. We don't work for righteousness, but we work out of righteousness through the motivating power of the Holy Spirit's love. We don't work for righteousness, but we do work out of righteousness. Amen. We don't work. We don't do righteous things to get God's attention, but because He's already made us righteous, right. now we can do these things. We can live in a way that brings His name honor and glory. I want to move to the second section here. We're going to cover verses seven through seven through twelve, and Paul helps us now identify the corrupt character of the false teachers. The corrupt character. The false teachers. He says in verse 7, well, before I before I read it, I want to kind of break it down. And here's another list for you to help you remember. So he gives us six characteristics of these false teachers. Six characteristics of these false teachers. And I would even say that these false teachers um, are not alone. That these can apply uh, to all teachers of ungodliness. To all false teachers. And the first one is... They hinder the truth. They hinder the truth. Let's read verse seven. He says, "You were running well. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who hindered you?" The word here "hinder," uh, we referenced barrier earlier, was kind of the same meaning. It means to to break up a road, but it's a little more intense than just like a a barrier in a road where you can't get by. It, 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 in, in the Greek, it, it it almost connotes this this breaking up of the the road, the asphalt, so that it is completely impassable. It is something that that is, some destruction has taken place where you cannot get around it. It is the opposite of a clear way. What Paul is saying is, I spent time with you, Galatians, and you were doing well until someone came and broke up the road that you were on, and now you can't go past. Paul often uses this metaphor of a a race throughout his writings and his letters. Paul is saying, when I was with you, you were good. (laughs) Like, what happened? Like, you didn't have any issue living the Christian life, the genuine life by faith. You were running well. Can this be said of any of us? Hmm. Did we start off, like, just completely trusting in him? No delusion?" not trusting in my own effort, even when I mess up, it's all him, all grace, all day, all the time, completely him. If you can't say that today, then what happened? You were running running well. What has hindered you? Paul leaves. Some men come down. Some Judaizers begin leading them away from the way of grace, from the way that the Spirit had, had put before them, the way of faith. They've diverted from grace and faith. Now they're back on the road of works and the law. Their GPS system was off. I, um, I'm a big fan of ways. I love Waze. If you don't know what Waze is Waze is an app on um, I think that do they have Waze for Androids too? They do. Okay. <laughs> I don't I don't know. You know, the Androids may I don't know. But anyway, uh, me and my son have this thing. He's a he's not a fan of Waze. <laughs> but what I like about Waze is, I don't know if Maps does this, or I think it may, it may do it, and it's a little slow. Waze is a, a user-generated kind of uh, app, right? So you can, like, say where, where, when there's a police officer, you know, mile ahead, or if there's a world that is closed, or if there's construction that has all of a sudden happened and, and the, the makers, of the developers of the app haven't had a chance to get it in there yet, a user can do it and there's like immediate, uh, it shows up immediately on the app on the app that you're using. And you can like, kind of, you know, make adjustments as you're going. However, there are times, I must admit, where Waze is telling me to go one way, and I know there's a better way. <laughs> and there's a quicker way. You know what I'm saying? Like I know. Now, sometimes the 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 the, the quickest way um, is 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 not always obvious. And, and people who don't know the city, if you've been here a little while, then you know the back the back ways to go. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know that if you're on uh, if you're trying to if you're on of drive and you're heading towards Eight Mile, there's a little side street you can take so you can beat some traffic. Like you know some of the nicks and, nicks and crannies in this city. And and if someone comes and tells you another way, like an app. No matter who has put the information in there, if you know the city, then you'll know that it's off. Or what they had done, they had started to listen to these Judaizers, these other people who had come down trying to tell them that it was a better way. Verse 8, Paul says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. (laughs) This new direction is, is not from God. This 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 new ways notification that is trying to tell me that there's a better alternate route is not of God. Paul says, and this is the second this is the second uh, characteristic of, of false teachers, they are not of God. They are not of God. God is sovereign. Paul says he alone has called you. He's called you. Please, don't forget. That the work of salvation is entirely God's doing, and none of it is man's doing. It's entirely God's work, and none of it is ours. The psalmist writes in Psalm 3.8 that salvation belongs to the Lord. Psalm 62, he also writes, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Not from some men that came down. Trying to tell me a better way. It belongs to him. The angels and the heavenly crowd will sing and declare that he's worthy of, of honor, glory, power, strength, and that salvation belongs to him, not for man. Verse 9, he says, a little leaven leavens the entire lump. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. The third thing. The third characteristic of these false teachers is that they contaminate everything. Everything. Just, as he says, a little leaven, just a little leaven here, meaning just a little heresy, just a little false teaching, does a lot of damage. Just a little bit has great impact. It contaminates the church. That's why I thank God for Paul. I thank God for him. There is, and there has been really for maybe the last, I would say, it's intensified over the last 30, 40 years. Um, it's been an attack on the life of Paul and the ministry of Paul and the accuracy of Paul. One, did he even exist? <laughs> I, don't, I, I, I would say these aren't very reputable scholars and theologians. Most reputable ones say, yeah, he definitely uh, existed. But there's just constant attacks to try to belittle him and undermine his authority, and undermine his apostleship. Same thing he was going through here; he's still going through. There's a, 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 a acronym that is thrown around along among scholarly works called the NPP. NPP stands for a new perspective on Paul. And I won't go through all of that right now, but there are all kinds of ideas and theories, again, that undermine his apostleship, undermining who he was, and undermining his authority. But thank God for him persevering here, and his heart is for God, the glory of God, and the health of the church. And he wants them to know, and he wants us to know that just a little leaven, a little heresy, a little false teaching destroys everything. In the scriptures, leaven can represent something good or something bad. But often it represents sin, like directly. Jesus warns us in Matthew 16 and in Mark chapter 8, he says, beware, strong language. Beware, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Sadducees, and the leaven of the Herodians. Watch out, beware. All three different leavens. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A, just a little bit contaminates everything. What is the leaven of the Pharisees, you may ask? The leaven of the Pharisees was, was, a, a, was a, a hypocritical mindset. It was an outward attempt to keep the law, not the spirit of the law, the letter of the law. But it was hypocritical because Jesus called them actors. Jesus condemned them. He said, you're, you're, you're good theater majors. You're good at licking the part, but there's no substance to you. He neglected them, not just for what they did, but he says, get this, for neglecting the more important letters of the law. What are they? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. He also said, beware of the leaven of the Sadducees. What was their leaven that, 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 that contaminates the whole batch? Unbelief. Unbelief. In Jesus' time, the Sanhedrin controlled probably the two most important institutions of the Jewish society, the Jerusalem temple and the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was a governing body uh, for both religious and legal issues. So they kind of, you know, had their eye on the law as well and helped to make sure that everyone else uh, abided by it. Right? They were like the morale police. The Often the leader of the Sanhedrin was a high priest that was given almost this like king-like authority, and he was almost always a Sadducee. So they believed in free will that was unrestrained, meaning that God had no role, no sovereignty at all. It was all about humans. They believed that humans were masters of their own destiny. And get this, they entirely rejected anything that was supernatural, anything that they could not see. They didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in demons, they didn't believe in heaven, they didn't believe in hell, they didn't believe in the resurrection. The way they thought about the afterlife was, the soul dies when the body dies. The end, period. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Sadducees. Then the last one, beware of the leaven of the Herodians. The leaven of the Herodians represented a political allegiance. Mm. Political supporters of Herod. They trusted in the political process. Oh, my God, I could preach on this one right here in 2022 during these midterm elections. Oh, it breaks my heart to turn on CNN and to see what looks on the outside to be brothers and sisters in the faith. Singing worship songs. Using our, the name of our Lord and Savior. Waving the flag. You no, know, the, the way of the kingdom is not the waving of our rights, it's the waving of our rights. It's the way of Christ. He says, beware of the leaven, of the Herodians. You no, know, just a single cell of cancer can metastasize until it spreads throughout the entire body. In the same way, a false Doctrine can can multiply and duplicate itself and spread throughout a body of believers. Just like one spark can create an entire forest fire. Thank God for the Apostle Paul. And listen, we don't we don't get it right. We don't get every doctrinal item right, and we don't have this, you know, haughtiness or superior mentality that we do. We've shared this before. I believe it deserves repeating because it's really a big part of how we try to philosophically lead here at Detroit Church. But we we want agreement in the essentials. And when I say we, I mean our interdenominational church who come from all kinds of different backgrounds. Even among our eldership, we have a varied view, uh, varied views on different subjects, different backgrounds. However, in the essentials, there's unity. In the essentials, there's unity. In the non-essentials, there's a lot of liberty. There's just grace and mercy to to listen, to listen, because we don't know it all, we don't have it all, to walk with each other and grow together and in all things, love. Essentials unity, non-essentials liberty, And all things, love. Verse 10, Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. What is he saying here? The sixth, the fourth characteristic of the false teachers, Paul says, they're gonna be judged. They'll be judged. You know, this is actually a word of encouragement to the Gentiles. He says, I, I, gotta, I have confidence, not in you, <laughs> but confidence in the Lord. That you're gonna receive this message. It's gonna sink. You're gonna run with this. And the one who is troubling you, they will be judged. And here's additional encouragement there will be a penalty. There's a penalty. And the penalty, it's gonna be harsh. Judgment is coming. Paul says, whoever they are, he doesn't list, we don't know the name, he doesn't give us the name of the person. But he encourages them in the same way that he encourages the church of Philippi in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. When he says, I'm confident of this very thing. That he who has started the good work in you will perfect it. Will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's not uh, not a lazy worker. He doesn't start something. And then procrastinate like I get to it, you know, whenever I can. (laughs) If he started the work of grace in your life, please believe, he's going to complete it. He's going to complete it. And there's grace along the way. Not just to get us in the door in our belief, but grace to live this out in a practical way that brings his name honor and glory. In a way that represents his holiness. There's grace for that. Holy Spirit helps us in that. Uh, verse 11 but but if i brothers still preach circumcision why am i still being persecuted in that case the offense of the cross has been removed the fifth characteristic is they persecute true teachers again thank god for paul in the midst of persecution he stood flat-footed and he preached he declared he wrote he traveled To them, the cross was offensive. The cross was a stumbling block. Because they just couldn't wrap their minds around the idea of a a suffering Messiah. They couldn't. Like it had been ingrained to them them, that their deliverer was going to come with authority. The authority that would be like that would have weight in a political regime. In a way that brought like natural fulfillment, physical fulfillment, political fulfillment. So it was a stumbling block because of that. But it was also a stumbling block because it robbed them of their most distinctive outward sign of their Jewishness. The Mosaic law and circumcision. So the cross was a stumbling block for them. And Paul says the cross has been removed In Philippians three eighteen, Paul is dealing with a similar issue. Paul calls them enemies of the cross, enemies of the cross. The cross offended them. Family, the cross offends us today. It offends us today. Whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, we are all bent towards trusting in what we can do for ourselves, and we're offended when we're told that we can't do anything. We're offended. Verse 12, I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I wish whew, those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. The sixth characteristics Paul gives is they should get cut off. And listen, Paul is using double, triple entratus here, like he he is dropping bars, right? Just throughout this whole text here. But he closes this section against the false teachers with what may be one of his harshest statements or maybe one of the harshest statements that you'll see in all of the scriptures. He was passionately opposed to their false doctrine and to their heresy. So he suggests that they mutilate themselves. The word he uses here uh, in the Greek, it's apokopto, apokopto. That's A-P-O-K-O-P-T-O if you're taking notes. A P O K O. PTO. It means to cut off specifically a member of the body. The word was used often for castration, and that is clearly Paul's meaning here. It's likely that he's even referring to a cult of what was called the cult of Cybele, C-Y-B-E-L-E. And this was a a popular pagan goddess in Asia Minor during Paul's day where the devout worshipers would come and they would offer their best worship by castrating themselves. And all of their priests, after they bought their best worship and castrated themselves, all of their priests were obviously eunuchs. So Paul is saying, listen, if you believe like the pagans that human achievement can earn you fag- favor, then why not go the whole way and castrate yourself? Why stop at the foreskin? Get really saved and cut the whole thing off. <laughs> you got to love Paul, man. This last section, and then we're going to open up for a little, little bit of uh, questions. I'm going to kind of go through this kind of quickly here. This last section, Paul helps us understand what we are called to, call to freedom, call to freedom. But what are we free to do? What are we free to do? Let's read verses 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. I'm going to break this, these three verses into two sections, that Paul says that we are called to freedom. We're free, number one, to oppose the flesh. You're free to oppose the flesh. Please let that sink in. You can tell your flesh no. You do not have to give in to everything your flesh wants to do. Do you know that your flesh hates God? And Paul uses the word flesh here. He's not talking about like our physical body. He's talking about the part of us, the, the, the will that, that is motivated by self apart from God that wants to do what it wants to do. It's the thing I believe that got Lucifer kicked out of heaven. When he says, I will exalt my name above, above the Lord most high. This, Paul says, in our flesh dwells nothing good. Like, you, you know, you can you can try to, you know, you can think you can, you know, I, I got to uh, save my flesh. I can't wait for my flesh to get saved. <laughs> There's no hope for your flesh. This is why we do things like fast. When Paul says to mortify the flesh, the word there, mortify, means to kill, like to kill by starvation. To kill by starvation. So the, one who, the way you silence your flesh is not giving it what it wants. You starve it. You starve it. Paul says we're free to do this, like your flesh doesn't have to run you. It does not have to lead you. <sighs> like in a day and age, we're in a culture where everyone is is hypersensitive about freedom and about our liberation. In the name of personal freedom and personal rights, the various activist groups who demand freedom so that they can do as they please they can do whatever they want to do at the same time we see things like addiction on a rise not just the drugs not just the alcohol but to sexual passions to violence to many other forms of bondage where it's become a stronghold and eventually it it the person becomes powerless They feel powerless to escape. Family, this is what happens when you persist in sin. Let me be clear. When you persist in sin, you develop less and less resistance to it. Our hearts become hardened, and we eventually forfeit any freedom over it. It's what Paul, I'm sorry, not Paul. Some think Paul, but let's just say the Hebrew writer, the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3. I don't think it's up here. Hebrews chapter 3. I love this passage. I love this passage. And I read it with such conviction. Verse 12 through 19, write it down, visit it later, revisit it later. But Paul says, I'm gonna read it real quick. Paul says, Take care, brothers. I'm sorry, I keep saying Paul. (laughs) That's my bias. The Hebrew writer writes, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another. Every day, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they get this, they were unable to enter because of unbelief. When we, when we just dismiss our sinful habits and we allow it to persist... It can eventually lead to disbelief or unbelief. Unbelief. James writes it this way in James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he's little ray and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire doesn't just stay desire. No. He says desire when it has conceived, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. So our Sinful patterns can lead to unbelief and then it can lead to death. But Jesus says in John chapter 8 verse 36, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So what are we free for? We're free to oppose the flesh. Paul is making it clear that freedom is at the very heart of the gospel and is at the very heart of godly living. It's not a side benefit of the Christian life. God has called us as believers to live. For freedom. The second reason Paul gives us that we are free, he says to serve one another, to serve one another. How? He he breaks it down so plainly by fulfilling the whole law. Not all 613, but the law as Jesus responds in Matthew chapter 22 when he's asked the greatest commandment. What is the greatest commandment, anybody? Say it again. (laughs) again. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. And what is the second that is like the first? To love your neighbor as yourself. We're free to oppose the flesh, and we're free to serve one another by loving one another. And as Jesus did, laying down our lives. For one another, this is the mind of Christ this is the reason why we are saved, glory to God questions, anybody it's got to be one question (laughs) comment not a question
0: Hey, so um, we were actually, a couple of uh, friends, uh, we were talking about this, um, kind of how we were talking about um, apostasy. So, like, learning what that was and um, how, like, apostasy is um, pretty much the hardening of your heart and just, like, basically giving into sin and just denying God. And I just thought about that, just continuing on that, because, like, I, said I watched that video um that explained the um that I sent the video in about the uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit what that means and how that just means denying Jesus and just how that just freed me because I was one of those people like convinced that I committed the sin but um but yeah and just the video also talked about apostasy and so I was thinking about that too um
2: are you concerned about you being one? Oh no! One? Okay, okay.
0: I, and that's the thing. I for the longest time I was, and my um, I have a mentor from college. She sent this video in actually this weekend, and um, she was just like, I think this is like the the best explanation, and it was because when they explained it, um, you know, after they set up the context and about the conversation that Jesus was having with the um with the I think it was the Pharisees. And everything. The problem with them was it wasn't um, the the language that they used or the word that they said, but the fact that they saw the truth very clearly and they still, you know, completely deny God. And that is the sin, which is you see God's goodness, you see His truth, and you still turn away. And then it was also just encouraging, like it's never, it's never final. Like if if you if you walk away from Him and then you change, your, like you you're always able to come back. Um, and so I know for me, that was something that ministered to me because I felt like I've, I've had that thought of like, Oh, you know, you can't, or, you know, they sold their soul to the devil or whatever, whatever. Like there's, there's never a point where you can never come back. It's all, as long as you're alive, you can always, you know, there's never, so yeah. Um, the, the part about like the hardening of the heart and everything that just kind of all connected for me. And just a, just a reminder just to surrender to the Holy Spirit Just I know for me the things yeah. that I struggle with, the things that I don't um, discipline myself to say no to, yeah. just the conviction for me just to do my part, the, what I can do basically, so.
2: Amen. Amen, sis. Amen. Thank you for that. Praise God. Anyone else? Ellington. Okay, so say say like I sin and then after I sin I now in my mind I think that I now need some time. Like I can't do this thing because I cannot now enter into the presence of God because I just sin. Is that that's legalistic, correct? I would say is it legalistic um, it depends, maybe on the motivation for of the heart. Like, why you can't is because you have to earn your holiness. It could be other things. You know what I'm saying, but I think it could be. Because, I'm, like, if you think that, though, or does that also mean that you also think that if you don't sin, then you can? Like, because yes. So then, it would be. Yeah, I, I would say absolutely. And because it is relying on our own ability and what we can do or what we have done or haven't done. I didn't do this. I didn't do that this week, so I'm good now, God, right?
1: Mm. Father, help us.
2: Father, help us.
1: Help us. You know, I would add to that um, we got to be careful with guilt and the role that the enemy plays in our lives. You know, uh, the only voice in your head ain't always yours. <laughs> you, you, you know. So, I mean, the enemy will definitely help you go down the rabbit hole. Like, yeah, you know, you're right. You ain't, you ain't worthy. God ain't trying to hear you right now. You know, you don't even bother confessing that because, you know, that was really bad. You need to wait, you know, a week before you confess that. I mean, you know, you kick that can on down the road, you know. And when you're in a state of unrepentant sin, unconfessed sin, you know, you are never out of relationship with God as a son or a daughter, but you can be out of fellowship with God, you, you you know, and you can take yourself out of his protective graces, you you know, in a sense where God is sovereign, he may keep some stuff from you by his sovereign will, but he may not yeah. out of his sovereign will yeah. as well.
3: That's good. So, I think along the lines of that, though, there is this, um, when you're convicted, right, about something, and you can... You, you know, you can genuine, genuinely um, ask for forgiveness, but, I mean, there's those times where God is still kind of unpacking it. It's not it's not false guilt or anything like that. It's just that the sober, sobering of the magnitude of maybe this particular sin or behavior. And so you're kind of in this space of, I think— um, understanding, like getting a clearer understanding and you start, you, you know, like it can be something um, that's very pervasive in your life that you didn't see, hmm. you know? And so the Holy Spirit, and it's not like, I feel like he's gone. It's, it's not this kind of, it's not condemnation because condemnation feels very different. Um, it's more of a, a gentle but firm c- clarity and repentance process. Does that make
2: sense? Hundred percent. I think the scriptures call it godly sorrow. It's godly sorrow that brings forth repentance. Amen. I'm gonna invite Pastor Flynn up because I know we got a couple things to do before we end here. So unless there's any other questions. Amen. Thank you guys. You're great students tonight.
1: Amen. Let's give the Lord a big hand clap of praise for Pastor Sonny. He brought it, he was talking that stuff earlier, like, oh, it's going to be rough, I don't know if I'm going to make it, and all of that, Holy Spirit did what Holy Spirit does, uh, and we want to thank him uh, for that, and Pastor Sonny for his obedience, uh, you know, if, if you ever uh, get a chance to serve in this way in ministry, uh, never count on your own strength, because <laughs> there are going to be many a days when it don't add up on paper, uh, you, you know. I was supposed to be here tonight. I, I asked Sonny a week ago, like, uh, can you can you do this? Because I knew what the schedule was going to be like. I didn't know what his schedule was going to be like. And in the flesh, I didn't care what his schedule was going to be like. It was all about what my schedule was like, you, you, you know. And I'm just grateful that God uh, used him. I think he did a much better job than I would have done on this text anyway. Uh, and so I know I got a lot from it, so thank you. Uh, just a couple of announcements. Obviously, we want to make room. Uh, if you feel like the Lord has... Uh, put it upon your heart to uh, sow into the ministry, uh, we will. We invite you to do so. Uh, not that we're going to have a, an offering or any such thing, but we do uh, have several other means by which to give, uh, whether that's text to give. You see the number there, 313-855-5025 or cash app, dollar sign, DC Giving. Or you can go to our website at uh, DetroitChurch.com forward slash give. Uh, and as Pastor Sonny says, if you want to do it the old-fashioned way, Uh, that is fine as well. We gladly give you an envelope. Uh, You know, we just ask that uh, you move as the spirit leads you. Uh, That's no guilt trip. That's no extra pressure or any such thing. Uh, You know, I grew up, and the way I grew up, they said, you know, if you enjoy the food, uh, uh, you know, give to the restaurant. Uh, You know, keep the doors open, because there's nothing worse than a good soul food joint that go out of business. You know, I'll just be mad when my favorite soul food joint go out of business. I'm like, dang, I guess we should have went... More than just on Sundays. Uh, (laughs) You you know, so it's all our fault. Amen. Uh, Also, we want to make just any pressing announcements. We got some, as the holiday season comes upon us, uh, you know, I did not, uh, I don't have them. We got uh, 12 days of prayer coming up. That's starting on December 12th. Uh, The church will be open from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. each night uh, over in this space over here. Uh, where you can come and uh, lay before the Lord and pray. Uh, you know, uh, and, and there's no no rules or restrictions uh, on, on that. We're not going to kick you out if you want to pray for six hours or six minutes. Uh, you know, we're not going to look at you funny if you pray for three and walk out. Uh, you know, that's between you and, and your father. Uh, also, uh, sisters, uh, you're the, uh, the uh, 313, I keep wanting to say 313. our sisters... Um, auxiliary, if you want to call it that, uh, sisters' ministry, women's ministry, will be meeting this Saturday at Hunt Street. Uh, don't know the time. Nine thirty. Nine thirty. Uh, so it's, 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 it's the sisters who are familiar with that. It's, it's your every third Saturday uh, gathering. Kim, am I missing anything uh, with respect to that? Uh, they tell me my wife is going to be sharing uh, this this Saturday at that. So I'm excited uh, for you all. I know the story already. Uh, <laughs> So I'm excited. I'm excited for you all. It's a great, so powerful testimony to see what the Lord has done. Be much in prayer uh, for the saints. Uh, Pastor Sonny alluded to uh, that tonight. pray for our sister Tunisia, who co-leads our greeters uh, ministry. Uh, that's not the name of it. Uh, but, uh, right, right, right. <laughs> but uh, you meet them every week. So pray much for her as she is in the hospital right now. Uh, so pray that the Lord will move mightily there. Uh, I don't think there is anything else. So, oh, Kim? We're not, oh, us, right, right. Next week is uh, next week is Thanksgiving, uh, so we will not be here uh, next Wednesday. Uh, man, it's just crept up on us so fast. We will not be here. You are free to do all the Bible study you want at your address, all right? And I encourage you. I encourage you. Get ahead of us. Amen. Uh, so we'll be back, Lord willing, the, uh, the, the Thursday, the Wednesday after Thanksgiving, so it's the 6th to 30th. We'll be back on the 30th. Uh, So, you know, know, have a great Thanksgiving, folks. Uh, Spend spend the time with your family. Think much about how good God has been. Uh, You know, I was riding down the freeway today on my way from point A to point B, uh, listening to some worship music. I was just overcome, you know, with the goodness of God, Uh, in spite of circumstances. You you know, like, man, God's still got these. I mean, it's waiting for me as soon as I park. But it's right there. But, you know, God, you're still good. Uh, and so that, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I think uh, that therein lies genuine faith, I believe, you know, when we're able to look at our circumstances above our circumstances, you know, and keep our eye, uh, you know, it's, it's it's been said, and I won't do any teaching or preaching right now, but uh, if you keep your eye on the horizon,